are listening to the Elephant in the Room podcast with your host, Sutta Singh. Each week, we will bring you a diverse range of inspiring speakers on issues of inequality and inequity. You will hear stories about fairness, justice, belonging, and about best practice for creating a more inclusive workplace. So, if you are an individual or leader interested in a fairer, equitable, compassionate society and workplace, this podcast is for you. My guest on the Elephant in the Room podcast this week is Sarah Waddington, founder of Socially Mobile, Future Proof, and a former CIPR president. She's also the founder of the management consultancy Astute. Sarah was recently awarded a CBE for her services to public relations and voluntary sectors. Thank you, Sarah, for being a guest on the Elephant in the Room podcast and making time for this conversation today. It's brilliant to have you here. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm so delighted to be speaking to you today. When I wrote the questions, I started with congratulations on your CB, but that the socially mobile, the first cohort has completed. Congratulations on that. It's absolutely brilliant. To start with, can you tell us a bit about your journey to setting up your own consultancy? How has it been so far? Thank you for the lovely congratulations. I actually have my investiture in July, so I've got something very exciting to look forward to. Wow. And uh, we say since that news and being able to use that to launch socially mobile, it's, it's been quite a special time for me. So I'm very grateful for all of that that's been happening. Where to start in terms of starting my own consultancy? Well, I did a French media degree, loved it. And in my final year, I was very lucky to do an internship and I went to a PR company and the rest is history, shall we say. Um, came back to the Northeast, went into PR agency, then wanted to widen my expertise and um, went to PR marketing agency, developed my marketing knowledge through an MA and kept my CPD up. And ultimately, I got to a stage in my career where I was running three offices for a group up in the north and the recession hit. So it was about 13 years ago. And I suddenly sensed an opportunity. I was doing less of the day-to-day stuff and I was missing it. And then I had clients who wanted to work with me and weren't getting me, but also didn't want or couldn't afford anymore to have agencies with big operational costs. They wanted the consultancy direct. So that's when I actually set up my own company and didn't really look back. And I was really fortunate that back at that time, I did something which was quite innovative in terms of business model. I actually set us up as a remote working agency. And that seems very commonplace now because of the pandemic, but I was pretty much the first of my kind. And I could only do that really because a lot of the private sector and blue chip companies that I'd worked with were doing the same. And it just became much more acceptable. So I started there. And then as we grew, I started to be really interested in the idea of purpose and social capital. And that's what we started to build the agency around. We wanted to only be working with organizations that were doing good in their local communities. And so that became a key strategy for us in terms of we wanted to do good and therefore the organizations we were working with had to do the same. Through that, as we were advising on purpose, I suddenly realized there's an opportunity in terms of the management consultancy. And at the same time, I was working with the CIPR and pushing very much the message that if we were to be a strategic management function, we needed to have that business acumen and the skills that go with it. And so I developed my own and that of the team. And that's how we've kind of got a hybrid agency, which is management consultancy with tactical implementation skills in terms of PR and marketing. So they complement each other really, really well. That's such an awesome journey. And 13 years ago, you started with remote 
I started in the pandemic, I was supposed to start at the end of 2019, uh, but ended up at the end of 2020. And I was worried whether it'll work or not. Of course, now nobody cares where you are. No, and I think it's talk about tools in place. Tech is wonderful for that. And it's helped democratize things for people, I think. But I have missed the face-to-face meetings because what we've always done is gone to work in our client organizations. We can have meetings and then say, can we remote work from here? Or we take them out for lunch and we have the meeting and lunch. It's, it's always been very social and very much about the relationship building. And useful as it is, you can't quite get that from Teams or Zoom or whatever your tech of choice is. I mean, there has to be some element of human interaction. I think it's good for everyone. So you also referred to purpose. That is 13 years ago, you were starting to think about purpose and what it meant. And purpose has become such a buzzword in the past two years. Everybody is talking about it. What does this mean for businesses at large in our industry? The people who actually go out and define that purpose, right? Is it important for them to have their own purpose or just align it with a client's purpose? Really good question. I'm going to try and break that down a little bit. I I think purpose is really, really important. I think everybody recognizes, and it's right that it's at the forefront of everybody's minds right now because of a crisis, a global crisis. We've seen that with the pandemic. We've now got the war in Ukraine. But not just that, the climate crisis is the most pressing and ultimately it needs a collective response. So that means from us individually as people, but also the organizations we work for, combined with policymakers. It's not just down to governments now. It needs everybody to respond. So I think purpose has to be top of the agenda for the C-suite. And it has to be something that PR practitioners are advising on and have a really good handle on. And for me, you ask the question, is it important for PR practitioners to have their own purpose or just align with the client's purpose? My view would be that the greatest results come when you have shared values, when you're both pushing in the same direction and that you're looking at, for example, the UN Sustainable Development Goals. There may be some that particularly resonate with you. So I think the best results come when you find organizations or an employer that has a very similar focus. And I think that's when sweet things happen. The other thing I would say is, what does purpose mean for business at large? It has to be an imperative because A, we've got an imperative to save the world for future generations. And that sounds very dramatic, but ultimately that's what the mission is right now. But secondly, there's a commercial imperative because it's what the public is now demanding. If you look at the Elderman Trust Barometer and the special reports they brought out, and there's a number of other industry data points that say the same, but it's not just that. So there's the impetus from public. And what's really interesting now is there's also the impetus from People like venture capitalists who are saying, we are not going to provide the finance unless you can demonstrate to us that you're doing better within your communities. And I think that's really interesting because change only really happens when there's that push-pull effect. And there is that squeeze now. Businesses can't ignore it. They can't just focus on the bottom line. They're being forced to address it because of the stakeholders around them. And I think that's really, really important for the business community to recognize that they haven't already. I think this is the moment in time Perhaps the timing is right for everyone to actually come together, build a better world, hopefully. I really, really hope so. Every bit of the optimist in me says that. But then you look at the energy strategy that the UK government put forward and it just, for me, feels catastrophic at times. But you have to kind of put it in perspective and then use your influence in the best way you can. True. Uh, So moving on, the world that we live in is changing every single day. How can practitioners remain relevant as advisors to the C-suite? 
I think you kind of nailed it in the question. I think the world's changing every single day, every single week. And, and it's not small changes. It's things that are really changing the way we work, we live, we think. And I think for practitioners, the opportunity is to help make sense of change for organizations, to understand what's happening, to do that kind of forecasting of what's coming next and what organizations need in order to evolve alongside or even leapfrog some of it. I think that's very much been the case if you look at the pandemic, take the NHS as a great example, how that has very quickly adopted new technologies in order to maintain a healthcare service to the public. And it was change that was already coming, but it obviously it, it's had to happen really, really quickly. And I guess it's a case of, I don't think we're done with that change yet. So there's an element of consolidation, but looking forward and helping organizations navigate it in the best, most ethical way they can while making sustainable choices that might not feel comfortable because we've all had lots of change, lots of difficulty trading over the last two, three years. So there might not be surplus left. So making just commercial decisions that might cost a lot for be better for the long term, they're really hard to do right now. So it's helping navigate all of that, I would suggest. I think being conscious about the hard to do things, that's a really good point. So you are the founder and editor of Future Proof. And given that background, what would be the three to five things you would certainly need to plan for to future-proof our industry? This is a great question. And I love that you asked me this. And I'm going to grab my very first future-proof book. Now, you'll know that there's six books, five crowdsourced, two of which are NHS related. But the very first one is dedicated to Dr. John White, who I respect hugely. And his writing has covered this. And I'm going to quote, as I did from the book, from a paper that Dr. John White presented to the Swiss Public Relations Society in 1999. Now, he talked about what the opportunity was for PR people in the industry. And he talked about success being dependent on practitioners. And I'm going to read verbatim, recognizing the opportunities presented by the environment and management needs, taking steps to educate and train themselves and make full use of communication technology to provide reliable, if not indispensable, services to managers as they seek to deal with complexity and manage successful businesses. I genuinely don't think much has changed. It's a bit like the answer I gave before. It's managing complexity, understanding business, understanding technology, and making sure that you're taking relevant information back to the board and helping them make decisions on the back of that. Even if you're not a member of the board yourself, you can still influence. And I just love that quote. When you look at what's the opportunity right now, how do we maintain this strategic position we were given thanks to the pandemic when businesses suddenly realized how much they need the communications? And that tells you in a nutshell there, I just think that it will always hold true for me. As you were reading, I thought, oh my God, it still is relevant, right? Moving on, the definition of leadership has evolved in the past decade and more so in the past two years. So what does a good leader look like? This is a really great question. And for me, a great leader is empathetic above everything. I think they're in touch with society, the wider political landscape, and they're forward thinking and bring all that knowledge to the role. But ultimately, they're value driven and authentic, and they're prepared to make difficult decisions quite quickly. But obviously will take their communities on that journey with them. So for me, it's all about good leaders build social capital. And I mean by that two different things. One, 
they look at their audiences, including their internal audience, which can be forgotten at times. And they influence those and they bring them on the journey. And they also build social capital by doing good in their communities. And I think that for me defines a good leader. They know their strengths, they know their weaknesses, and they build a team around them that can thrive and that as a collective can take the organization forward. Yeah, that's so true. So moving from that too, women leaders lead differently. We have so many stories from New Zealand and from Germany with Angela Merkel. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I think this is a really interesting question. And I think the, the normal answer would be, oh, it's about soft skills. I, I just think we have a different approach, uh, a different perspective on things and might approach things very differently. I think uh, women leaders tend to surround themselves by a real diversity of thought and people, which I think really helps when you're making decisions. They will look at the backgrounds and the skill sets of the people around them and, and draw that in. I'm not saying that male leaders don't do that, but I see it much more within my community. The thriving communities that I'm surrounded with are often led by women and they deliberately take a community approach. And I love that. I think that's really, really important. And I've always had an issue, slightly off question, but I've always had an issue with people saying, oh, we need to do more assertiveness training for women or they need more confidence. It's, that's not what they need. They need more support and they need more training and they need more opportunities. It needs to be more of a level playing field. And soft skills are really important in the workplace. And to suggest that you need to be able to shout louder to be heard better is completely wrong. You need to actually listen more carefully if that's the case. Absolutely. Listening is such a... Yeah, undervalued. Yeah, and what can aspiring women leaders do to be more intentional and strategic about navigating power structures within an organization? Because, yeah, I mean, there are power structures uh, and there are challenges wherever you work in the best of organizations. 100%. I think this is about, firstly, finding a workplace that shares your values. I really do think that's really important. If you're going to thrive in a workplace, it needs to be somewhere that you can fit in or that you believe in their mission and they believe in you. And so there's a natural relationship between the, the two of you. But I think you have to be very specific about the goals that you want and build allies around that. So it's not just about you. It's about actually what you want to achieve on behalf of the organization and making sure that you use your connections in a powerful way. And I would say, if it's not working for you in an organization, you try different routes. I always say, and it's a hard decision, it's a tough decision, but ship on a ship out, get out, because if they're not going to give you the opportunity, there is something structurally wrong with that organization, whatever that might be, whether it's bias or structural racism, I don't know. If there's something holding you back and you've tried a whole heap of different ways, don't waste your energy, find somewhere that will value you for what you can bring. That is such good advice. I wish I had it. <laughs> It's uncomfortable though, isn't it? You don't want to believe that. You'll often expend wasted energy wanting to change the place because you believe in them. Absolutely. So much of wasted energy and angst in there. So you've been a champion of women in leadership for a very long time. Uh, what can the industry do to address the gender ethnicity gap in leadership? I mean, I've been talking about women on boards from 2000 when I was working with the Commonwealth Business Council and we're still talking about the lack of women on boards. And of course, our industry is no different. What would your advice be? There's two things here for me. And I'm going to talk about the wider issue first. There's a big issue in terms of we don't have diversity on teams because we don't take a long-term strategic view to it. And there's lots of reasons for that. So we don't take a thoughtful approach to talent hire, for example. We don't think about school leavers 
who might not have the right qualifications, people have not had access to the relevant training. And to try and get those people, we need to be in their communities, making our industry an appealing choice and providing the training and education that's appropriate for them. And if you're an employer, obviously there's a cost attached to that. So there's this first thing about actually recruiting diverse talent, which we don't do well because employers are scared to put diverse teams in front of certain clients or they just like to hide in their image. And we know there's bias in that regard. So we need to break that. So this first thing is about actually how we recruit people. And the second one is actually progression. We're not good progressing for whatever reason, diverse talents. And if you look at the industry data, we can all clap ourselves on the back and say, well done, we're getting more Black Asian and ethnic minority colleagues into the industry. But actually they're not getting into managerial director level roles. And we have to ask ourselves a very hard question as to why that is. And they get to a certain point and they leave. And that's whether they don't see people in their own image whether there just isn't progression for them. That's something we very much need to address. And that's kind of where we landed with Socially Mobile in terms of an intervention that we specifically brought in to kind of deal with this. Yeah. So congratulations once again on Socially Mobile, another wonderful initiative to help change the industry for the better. How did the idea come about and what is your aspiration for Socially Mobile? Oh, thank you. It's been a long time in the making. So in 2015, I think it was when I established Future Proof. And that's because I really was frustrated by the approach to public relations, which seemed to very much see it as a tactical function and responsive rather than something where we actually take control and are proper advisors to organizations. So like I said, it was about reinforcing the value of public relations to business and to show how it works as a strategic management function when it's done effectively. And then through my work with the CIPR, I was seeing lots of industry data and I was just really frustrated by the fact that we were becoming a closed shop to people from lower socioeconomic backgrounds and people from diverse backgrounds. And I found it really frustrating. And every single year I tip up and there'd be a conference or there'd be a speaking thing. We're all nodded away. So this is terrible. We need to do something about it. And nothing was being done. And eventually there's only so much you can start by beefing away at the sidelines. And I thought, you know what? I want to do something that addresses this. And initially I tried to register Socially Mobile as a charity. It took ages. Um, the charity commission is swamped and they're way behind where they should be. But the long and short of it is they came back and said they didn't feel that the charitable objectives were right because the public relations industry was a fairly affluent one, which completely missed the point of the audiences that we were trying to reach. Yeah. So what we did is we changed it. And we decided we're going to do a community interest company, which we've now done and which would give us a bit more flexibility in terms of the offer. And then the pandemic hit and we had to pause because we were trying to manage businesses' lives. But it was brilliant because it gave us time to think. And in my head, what I'd wanted to do was fundraise and then connect people who would like funding to find the course that they couldn't afford and do it. That has been the original concept but it was going to be quite problematic. And I realized it was going to be harder again to try and fundraise the amounts that we would need, bearing in mind lots of businesses have been through a very challenging time and the forecast was still going to be turbulent. So ultimately it was good because it gave us time to think. And I was working with a professional fundraiser and she said, oh, you should look at this fantastic uh, company in Cumbria. They work with ex-offenders and they provide training in order to be able to rehabilitate them and get them into the workplace. And I looked at it and I thought, this is a brilliant concept. Instead of trying to connect people and just pass money over to yeah. courses, I'm sure it'd be great when we don't have any quality assurance over, we'll create our own training platform. 
And then what we can do is offer fully funded places to those who deserve it, but we can also take paid places and those paid places will help make us sustainable and reduce the impetus for big fundraising activity. And that's what we did. And I'm thrilled to say the first cohort have just come through and they've really found value in it. Two have just got themselves dogs and I can't wait for graduation so I can congratulate them in person because they've worked so hard for their success. Yeah, it is amazing. It is really brilliant. You created something where there is action and you can see the movement and track the movement and track what is doing well. That's amazing. So you've created and championed a number of initiatives aimed at building a better industry. What's next for you? Uh, Nothing apart from social (laughs) while I'm making that a resounding success. I think I'm keen to do another future-proof book. I have got on my table here, I have actually written out the chapters that I'd like. It's just, I'm trying to work out, have I got the capacity to commit to it? <laughs> Other than that, socially mobile, there will be another fundraising round needed before too long. Also, we need to keep a handle on the content to make sure that's fresh. I need to keep on top of the curriculum. And this is a passion project outside of my day-to-day life and my business. So I don't want to overstretch because it is so important to me and Steve, who's my co-founder, obviously my husband. That's my one thing that I really want to focus on. And people keep asking me about, what about these people who are school leavers? How do we target those? I can't fix everything, but I, I'm, I'm <laughs> do the bits I can. <laughs> Absolutely. No, it's a huge task. And I think just getting it right and making sure that it grows and it does the job that for which you created it. I think that's a big ask. So we've come to the last question. What is the elephant in the room for you? It's such a good question and we've kind of touched on it. I think there's two really, that change is needed, but change is hard and it takes time and money and a lot of energy. And I think I wish people would acknowledge that. Like I said, there's a lot of nodding heads when we talk about big issues, big systemic issues in the industry. And if we started to look at it and break it down practically and pragmatically, perhaps that would be easier. But the fact that people don't necessarily admit it. I struggle with that. And I think from a leadership perspective, is elephant in the room is when people won't recognize or acknowledge their own weaknesses. I'm a flawed leader. I think we all are. There's very few people I would look at and go, they're the full 360 thing. But I know I make mistakes. I know I'm human. My intention, I like to think is always right. I, I always want to learn. I think that's the other elephant in the room. Just sometimes knowing You don't know the full picture. And back to what you said earlier, we need to listen better. All of us need to listen better. Absolutely. Great points. So we're ending on really wonderful insights from you. Thank you so much, Sarah, for making time for this conversation. So it's been absolutely delightful talking to you. Thank you for putting so much thought into the questions. I really enjoyed it. And I really appreciate the opportunity to chat. Thank you for joining us this week on the Elephant in the Room podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on any of your favorite platforms, iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts. And if you enjoyed listening to the podcast today, don't forget to write a review and tell your friends. Sign up on the link in the show notes to receive updates on our guest speakers, blogs and events. And don't forget to tune in every Thursday for new episodes.